Hello, welcome to the latest edition of the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, and I'm with the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter. I'm the Communications and Public Policy Director here at the chapter. And in our past podcast, you've heard from people with a wide variety of perspectives when it comes to the disease, whether it's researchers, people who have ALS, uh, staff members, board members, etc., And today we're going to be talking to one of those really um, smart and compassionate staff members, Alaire Altiero, and hopefully I pronounced that right. Uh, So, uh, and we're going to be talking about her great work at the Hershey Clinic at Hershey Medical Center uh, and what she's been doing in just a few months to improve the lives of people living with ALS and make sure they have the resources and support that they need as they live with this disease. Before we go into our discussion, I want to let you know that you should go to www.alsphiladelphia.org if you want to learn more about the chapter and about the disease, and if you want to find out about how you can participate in an event, or just you know get more well-informed in general. In, and also, this is the 20th year of the ALS Association Clinic at Hershey Medical Center, and that's one of the reasons why we're talking with Alaire today. We're going to have some more information about that in the next days and weeks up on our website and social media pages, all at ALS Philadelphia. So with that in mind, Alaire, thanks for joining our podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I was really um, excited to talk with you because we did a little video when I was over in Hershey a couple of weeks ago or days ago. Mm-hmm. My life is a blur, as I'm sure yours is. So I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. I remember what day it was, but it's hard to believe that that was only a week ago. Um, but you're doing some really smart work and helping a lot of people at Hershey. So before we go into all of the work you're currently doing, can you give us a little bit of a um, description of your background in helping uh, and just helping people in the medical field? Sure. Um, I'll start with just my uh, general educational experience and kind of go from there. But um, I completed my bachelor's degree at Pennsylvania State University in applied psychology. Um, From there, I did my master's degree at Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia, and that was in counseling and human services. And um, I received my doctorate in uh, general psychology at Capella University, um, which is in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, after I completed my doctorate, I did my residency in clinical training at Avera McKinnon Psychiatry Associates and Behavioral Health Center in Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota. Um, I have experiences um, that include assessment, diagnosis, therapy um, with adolescents, adult, senior populations. Um, I have worked in uh, acute residential facilities, inpatient um, settings. Um, I worked here many years ago at uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, University Hospital in a dual diagnostics methadone clinic. Um, I taught briefly at uh, Penn State Lehigh Valley campus, um, teaching uh, entry level uh, like psychology 101 and statistics. Um, but most recently, um, in the last few years of my doctoral experience, I was really focused on end-of-life issues um, and grief therapy, uh, incorporating uh, dream analysis or dream work. So I've kind of been 
all the way around uh, the block, but my uh, doctoral research as well as my personal uh, interests have really been with those who are at the end of life. Wow, that is quite a diverse background in healthcare. Yes. <laughs> I had no idea when we met that you had done so much. I know we had talked briefly when you first started here because you've only been here less than a year. Um, but one, not to get age into this, but you don't seem old enough to have done half of that. Um, so I'm going to assume. I, I feel like I've lived many lifetimes. <laughs> um, I just think I packed a lot into um, uh, several years and. I was really exploring um, different options, and I think having a very diverse background um, helping uh, different populations of people has helped me grow as a person as a, and as a clinician. But I feel that um, working with our patients and loved ones um, is exactly uh, where my path was leading to and where I want to be. Yeah, I was just about to ask you how that diverse background helps, because even though, I mean, Hershey... That area brings in people from a wide geography. As you well know, people come from far away because it's such a respected ALS clinic. Um, right. And then ALS itself is so diverse. So in terms of ages and backgrounds and how it presents itself to people. So um, you already mentioned it, but how has your background helped with, with working with those ALS families there? Well... It ALS um, does not discriminate, <laughs> so it, it, it affects the lives of people from all uh, ages, cultures, religions, um, socioeconomic backgrounds, and I, I, I think by having had experience with uh, people at all different stages of their life, walks of life, has helped me to better understand and empathize with our patients um, that, again, are um, so diverse. So you're, so the, the patients are diverse, the disease is diverse, and mm -hmm. what is it that you do, because that's what we really want to get to the meat of in this conversation, Right. what is your role at the clinic? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help patients and their loved ones identify and process the sometimes very difficult emotions that are experienced throughout the progress of this disease. Um, I'm also there to help to access, um, or I suppose assess, yeah, uh, clinical depressions um, or clinical anxieties that can interfere with our patient's uh, quality of life. And I also work with uh, Dr. Zach Simmons in recommending um, psychotropic medications that can help alleviate some of the negative emotions when they do get to that clinical level and they start to interfere with the quality of our patients' lives. Um, I also will recommend therapists that are within our family's uh, communities um, so they can do ongoing therapy since I, I can, due to our large amount of patients, do individual ongoing therapy with our families, but I can refer out and help them get connected with therapists in their community if necessary. Um, and I'm also the group coordinator for the uh, tri-state area, meaning Delaware, New Jersey, and uh, Pennsylvania, um, even though I personally lead the or facilitate the Hershey Resource Group. So... Um, and I think, I think the main thing here I do want to emphasize, too, is that 
even though the patient is our main focus, um, we, all of us, really do spend a lot of time working with the loved ones because they are equally affected by this disease, just in a different uh, capacity. So I try to be there for um, not only the patient, for, but for their loved ones as well. Well, that is quite a lot. And I think that, as I learned from taking some videos there uh, last week, and just mm -hmm. being here a long time, the, the overall clinic approach really helps because you're not just talking to Zach Simmons as the neurologist. You talk to a lot of people right. about, let's say, if Bill has ALS, you're talking to a, a team about how to approach and help that person, right? That's right. Um, you know, our patients are, are, are unique individuals, and um, I think in being able to work with a multidisciplinary team, we get to know the person um, from all different aspects, and, and it's, a, it's a very holistic approach in that, um, like you're saying, if if there are other factors going on in the household, like let's say some financial issues, um, insurance issues, we can talk to the social worker and work with them. Or if it's something about medication um, that they've been on before or, or that inter affects their, their living life situation, we have the nurses and the medical. And um, I mean, it's great. We have a spiritual um, uh, pastor who who also takes care of the needs in, in that area. Um, so I, I think having that diverse team and being able to get uh, the expertise from our other team members really helps me in my role um, help the individual the best way that I possibly can. So if you're a patient that goes to Hershey Medical Center, how many people are there to help you? You don't have to say the exact number, but there's, there's quite a bit, right? There, there are quite a bit. We, we have our neurologists. Uh, we have three. We have two neurologists, uh, three nurses. Um, we have three research, three or four research uh, people. We have our chaplain, um, occupational physical therapist, uh, social worker, um, our speech pathologist. Uh, I mean, we have a dietitian. I mean, there's there's so many members of the team. Um, and depending on what your needs are, uh, it, it seems as though at least one of us can help you meet those, those, those needs or at least refer you to the proper person based on our uh, professional uh, knowledge. And does, do you think that helps everybody there? You know, I was talking to the nutritionist, and I assume that for her, she's like, this is kind of bordering on this part of a disease, so you should talk to this person this is bordering on here so it takes a little bit of a pressure off of you to have the answer for everything because you know you have a, a lot of experts on hand that you know you can go from one person to another and you all are kind of working on that same patient profile or same disease that's right and it does it takes it takes the pressure off as well as the we know that the patient is getting the correct information because there is someone who specializes in that area rather than spreading ourselves too thin to try to address the patient's needs we're able to um, direct them to the team member who can help them best depending on what their issue is now one thing that makes it hard to take the pressure off is that you oversee a lot of people with ALS and their families so you're talking to uh, Heather, who has ALS, you're also understanding her husband or children or brothers, sisters, parents, whatever. So right. you don't have to give the exact number here because I doubt I didn't tell you to, but 
Um, roughly how many pe how many people do you think that you are uh, th that are in your purview just at Hershey when it comes to um, taking care of them in some way that have that are affected by the disease? Um, patients alone, I think our number is around uh, 300. Wow. Uh, give or take a little bit. And then on top of that, of course, you have the, the loved ones who are also affected. Um, but, I, I, I mean, as, as big as that number sounds, and it sounds intimidating to hear at first, I, I can tell you that... I, I, I truly, at least from my standpoint, I believe my, my coworkers would, would agree, is that we all have a very personal connection with each patient and their family. Um, and I think that's what makes us such a great clinic, is that it isn't just the numbers. We really get to know our, our, our patients and, and their families, and um, I, I think and I hope that they know that each one of them are unique and special to us. You know, that's been my experience working here with every part of our chapter, but particularly with Hershey because of its long-standing work at that clinic and knowing that Zach and Sue have been there for 20 years now, um, plus, right. plus others who have been there for quite a long time. Um, I know that the chaplain, I think, has been there for nearly as long um, and a few okay. other people uh, who have been there quite a, a long time. So that helps that you have that experience there. Um, but that also can be quite the challenge, I'm sure, because if you have 300 people all, nearly, or even 200, they're all very unique. It's not just this person has ALS, get them to do this, then this, then this, and we're done. Right, right. But I believe because each person's needs are, are, are unique and different that some people, for example, um, might need to spend more time with the physical occupational therapists or the nutritionists, and then they don't have any need of me. Or they, their issues that they're that they're working through are more spiritual. So that would be something that the chaplain would address. So it, it, even though we see all of our patients, depending on where they are in their disease, in their life, um, who they are, uh, will depend on which of us they probably have a close, closer relationship with or spend more time um, working with. Well, you have a very diverse background yourself, like you said, um, with, with, with it sounds like you did 50 years of work in five years. So <laughs> I, I'm not sure how you did all that, but um, do, is this work? Probably more of a span of 14 years, but still. <laughs> okay, whatever, whatever helps. Uh, but um, right. is this work harder than those things is it more i don't want you to say anything good or bad about other places put you on the spot there but um is this more challenging or is it easier because you're working with this clinic approach like how does it compare to what you've done in the past i it personally and it's not that i didn't think i had good experiences elsewhere because again that you know formed who i am and the clinician i am today but to me the work with our our families with this population is is extremely rewarding. That they would um, allow me to be part of this just so sensitive, important, um, private time in in their lives, um, and I'm honored that they they share this uh, their lives with me, um, facing. Facing death, our mortality, the meaning of what 
your life is, who you are, um, what you believe death is, or if there is anything after that, are issues that um, we all we all share as, as as human beings. I mean, it might not be something you think about every day, but when you're you're put in a situation like our families are, that you know you you were told you have a terminal disease that the average life expectancy is two to five years. I mean, naturally, that people are going to experience a wide range of emotions as well as existential questions regarding life and death. And to allow um, me to be a part of that experience, um, the probably the most important, in my opinion, experience of our life is really finding out and exploring who we are, what our life has meant, and being able to peacefully transition into whatever you believe the next existence is going to be. And these families allowed me to have these these conversations with them and to be there with them. And again, I'm very honored to be part of it. Now that brings us to the really the meat of this conversation and, and why I wanted to talk to you. So you host, you hold the resource groups um, at um, Hershey. Are you the only one that does or are there other people that do it too? Um, I'm the only one for for Hershey. Um, for the chapter, for the Philadelphia chapter, there's 15 different groups, and those are led by um, social workers, um, psychiatric nurses, um, and other mental health professionals. But I am I am the sole facilitator for the Hershey Resource Group. And I I want to really get to your work, but um, I, it reminds me of one question. Uh, the people who do the groups here, and I know um, Gail Hausman has done them, um, Wendy Barnes, uh, who, and I have great respect for both of them, um, and others have done them. Brenda Edelman's hosted some, and uh, Ann Cooney. Um, those people have all done some podcasts too um, with us, and so you can look them up if you're listening. But do you? People approach how they do this differently based on their background, based on where they're doing them, right? So. People aren't just doing the same thing at every group. No, and, and and you can see this all on our chapter website, but some groups are, are for specific um, populations or topics. Some are open to just the caregivers. Some are for um, caregivers with patients who are on vents. Um, we have uh, groups that uh, address um, uh, frontal temporal dementias. Uh, so there are there are a wide variety of groups. Um, my group is open to patients and caregivers or any loved ones. Uh, I, there are also several others uh, throughout the chapter that do that, but mine is open to um, pretty much anyone who's affected by uh, by the disease. And so, when you host a group, on average, how many people um, have come to your resource group? Um, well, it's really all over the place. When I first, as you, you said, I'm fairly new with the chapter. I started in June. When I did my first group, I had about 12 people there, and then it went up exponentially from there. Next one I had in the 20s. Next one I had close to 40. Um, and I would say on average we're probably a, a, around uh, the mid-20s in, in how many people that we have. So, but, but I know that even before you got there, there were – sometimes dozens of people at any one group depending on the month and what was going on there. So Right, right. And 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 there's always I think there's always been at least I can say speak for the Hershey resource group. We've had a we've had a good outcome um throughout the the years and the times of the year definitely do um impact 
the attendance, you know, holidays, weather, vacation, so on and so forth. But I would say on average that we've been pretty steady in around 20 or so. So you talked about how part of your job is to talk to people about some very difficult conversations when it comes to ALS. Um, I'm sure there's there's really no part of this that's easy in terms of what you're no. talking about. Um, so when someone comes to you, um, what are the things that may, maybe this is before they're in a group setting? You, you can tell me better than than I can surmise myself. But what are the first things that you want to discuss with someone um, when they come to you after they've been diagnosed and are just learning about the clinic, about the disease, about um, about the resources that are available to them? Um, I believe that that upon our first visit, which is usually about three months um, after diagnosis or thereabouts, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's a month or two, um, but people at that stage are, are experiencing, it seems, two different sides. One is um, relief um, because they have finally found out what's been going on with them. So having that knowledge of now I know what's going on with me, um, people express, you know, a sense of relief um, in having an answer. And then the other flip side of that is the actual shock of what they've been told, that they have um, this disease and, and what it looks like. And then, you know, with ALS, as, as people know, um, our patients know, have been educated about is it's so individual um, we can give you a, a list of symptoms or things that can happen but it's it's like a snowflake to each person it's, it's very individual to them so I think people are facing this unknown of I don't know what I'm going to see I don't know what this is going to look like and I don't know the time frame for that so I think in the beginning people are experiencing a lot of, of shock of worry of scare of anxiety and um, what I'm looking for is is to see when those emotions are natural, normal responses, which if you get this kind of news, that, that's, you know, reasonable that you would be, you know, have moments of sadness or moments of anger or moments of frustration, anxiety. But I get concerned when these become um, daily negative emotions that are af- affecting the quality of, of the person's <laughs> life. And, and so uh, those become conversations, bigger conversations. And I imagine that people want to have an answer about what's going to happen next, but this isn't a disease where you know, like an infection, where this is probably what's going to happen next, and here's what you do. Even for you, giving an answer isn't always just cut and dry. Right, and I think that's what causes a lot of the, uh, at least anxious um, feelings, is uh, not knowing what what the timetable is exactly, not knowing what the disease is going to look like for you. And then um, these patients just get used to the stage of where they're at, and then it changes again, and then it's a whole new learning experience um, for them of adjusting to a, a life change. And throughout this disease, as it progresses, it's it's constantly having to be uh, open to changing your life again when you've gotten used to a certain um certain change. So uh, a lot of emotions uh, obviously would, would come about with that. Um, as far as deeper conversations, like you're, you're talking about, um, you know, facing death, coping with death and dying. And those are hard conversations to have. And patients and family members don't always 
want to talk to their other supports outside about that, you know, family, friends, church, uh, because they are, they are difficult conversations to have, or even within uh, their own family or each other. But they are things that are on the mind and that are important to discuss because that way, once you're able to address that big white elephant in the room, um, there, there is some peace that can come with that. Uh, being able to talk about uh, what your life meant, who's important in your life, um, what legacy you want to leave behind. Uh, and the, some of those conversations come up at, at clinic, and I try to bring those topics up in group because even though they're difficult topics, they're topics that I don't want to pretend aren't there. Mm. And, you know, death is part of life. We're all going to die. Um, as I always kind of tease with everybody, no one's getting out of here alive. But when you're told that you are dying, you become a different part of uh, humanity, so to say. Um, you get labeled as, as, as dying, and there's a lot that goes along with that. But there is a, a sort of beauty that can come out of this disease, and that's living a deeper, richer, more meaningful life because your priorities of what's important, who's important, change. And, and families get closer, couples get closer than maybe they ever would have before. Yeah. So it's not all depression and, and gloom. There, there are some, some very beautiful things that can come out of this if you're willing to look at that. Um, I've heard that too from people that um, having ALS gives you, sometimes gives you time to do things that another disease or another way of dying would not give you the chance to do and it's people that have ALS are affected by it hate ALS but there's there seems to be a lot of people who appreciate that aspect of it that it really gives you time to be grateful to others and to you know to, it, it definitely changes your outlook in ways that other diseases and other things can't which is um something I didn't appreciate until I was here right Right. And that even goes back to when you were asking me earlier about um, this this role as opposed to me working in different other environments is that I, too, um, find that my life is deeper and richer because of uh, my patients and because of talking about the things in, in this life that are truly important and, and the other things that aren't and appreciating some of the smaller things that... Um, we don't always do, uh, that we don't, that we don't pay attention to. And so I don't think that necessarily for everybody, that's something that comes up right away, um, or even at all. But I, I, I do find that, um, our patients and, and, and loved ones do come to a point where they're able to, to see some of, some of that light in the darkness. Yeah. I know for me, I want to make a bigger difference with the time I have than I think I may have earlier. Um, I, I, I've had diseases in my life anyway. So my grandfather had ALS, my grandmother had Parkinson's. Um, and those are very different diseases, even though they're similar. Um, but you know, working here and seeing it so frequently, um, and what it means just kind of reinforces like, don't, don't waste what you have. And it's, there's often times when I like wake up and say, "Ah, oh, I hate that I wasted today," um, in right. ways that I wouldn't have thought before I was here. Right, right. 
Um, and I, I think again, just seeing seeing all different areas of life in a different light. Um, not not getting too upset about the so-called little things, but also appreciating some of the little things that go on. And um, I find that our, our families uh, do talk about having a different viewpoint of their life. And that goes for not only the patient, but for the loved ones, because after the patient does pass on, uh, and we, we do keep in touch with patient families after the patient has, has uh, passed on, they talk about uh, experiencing their life in a different way, in a deeper way, in a richer way. Um, and I, I try to stress to all our patients and families that even though you have this this diagnosis of a terminal disease and that you're dying, to not live in death, that you know it's something to recognize, it's something to pay attention to. That yes, you know this is this is coming down down the road, but to not live your life every day thinking I'm dying, I'm dying, but to appreciate the life that you do have and to live it and not end up regretting that you spend so much time thinking about um, a death that, you know, who knows when exactly it's going to come. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that makes this disease unique and the work you do unique. Um, and I know that the, I'm always impressed by how many people, um, particularly that were affected by any one of our clinics, Hershey in particular, but all of them here, um, that they stay involved for so long after they've lost a loved one. We, we just had our annual luncheon where we honored the Billy Lake community. Patty Lake Quinn lost her husband 25 years ago, and she could have given up whatever. You know, no one would have faulted her for spending 10 years helping people with ALS or five years or, or even one. You know, she, there's no obligation to her to do this again. Um, and there's story after story of people who um, have done a lot particularly at the walk in Hershey, but also at other things like, uh, I know just to mention some people in your area, Deb Graham, um, Jeanette Beck, um, and a, a lot of other Maureen Reed, even who works with you, like that could have right. easily un and forgivably said, this is too hard. I don't want to do it. And yet right. take this disease as a chance to, to give back and help others. Right. And I believe that goes back to um, how how this disease, even in its darkest moments, uh, can bring a, a lot of light. And also our ALS community, not only the Philadelphia chapter, but nationwide, is such a close-knit community of supportive um, uh, people, whether it's staff or, or family or groups or whatever. I mean, that's to me is was one of the most um, amazing and beautiful things I saw coming into um, this position is just how how close-knit the the ALS community is, which is why I believe people stay active in it, because they know what people have been through, and um, they want to be there for them like someone was for, for them when it was their time. So you're talking about the community. That's one thing we really want to uh, touch on here is your support group can have between a dozen and three dozen people or more even. Um, and so those people work together. So I know you mentioned when we last talked that the families that come end up sharing strategies, um, comforting each other, um, talking to each other outside of the meeting in, in a very positive way. 
Uh, so, so what do the families get out of the resource group that they don't just get on a one-on-one -on -one setting? Um, what makes that valuable? Because I want people that listen to this to see why they should participate in a resource group wherever they are, even if they're not in our chapter area. Right. Well, I'll, 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 I'll restate something that one of our uh, patients, uh, loved ones, said in um, a recent group. They said that they come to group not so much because they, they want to be active in the conversation, because some sit there and just listen, but they said that they like being able to come into the room with the loved one, the patient, in a wheelchair, in a power wheelchair, not being able to speak, not being able to move. They don't have to explain to anybody what's going on because everybody knows. So it's, it's, it's comforting. It's comforting to know that you're not alone, that there are other people who are walking the same walk as you are. There is that um, support to know that ALS is not a solitary occupation, that there, there are others who, who are, are going through the same thing, that there, there are people that can support you, that you can talk to, again, your outside support, but they won't truly be able to completely 100% know what you're going through unless they're going through it. And I think that's what people feel at the support group is that they can just look at each other or say something or laugh or share tips or frustrations or joys and know that other people know exactly what they're talking about, that it's not sympathizing, but empathizing, understanding. Um, and yes, group members, some exchange information and, and stay in touch. Um, some come just because they, they don't want to be alone and they need to be reminded that they're not alone. Um, and Sometimes, again, it's, it's talking about those difficult things that you can't talk about with other people or don't want to talk about with other people, but it's safe within the group setting. Um, and and there, there really is a, a beauty within the group. I mean, not to say that the clinic isn't great. It is. Um, or, you know, the other uh, supports within the community that are good, they are. But knowing that there are other people and you can talk to them and they can they can share with you I, I think is invaluable yeah and you know you touched on the comfort that they can give to each other and that they're able to be comfortable around each other one thing that really um hit my head when you were speaking is okay. that they're able to laugh together and i think mm -hmm. with als and anything like it sometimes it can feel hard to feel comfortable laughing and finding humor in things that other people might be offended that you would laugh at so being in a group like that you know sometimes you need that humor to uh, to get through okay. things and i'm sure that that's a very cathartic element to the groups absolutely i think people um sometimes feel like if they're married they can no longer have arguments because now they have this disease or they can no longer be frustrated with each other or, or so on and so forth well in the in the group people can feel safe being themselves, being the people that they always were, joking, laughing, teasing each other, because it, you know the disease does not become who you are. It's just it's just a piece of, of your life. Who you are is always who you are, and I think sometimes people forget that, but they are oh, remember that or allowed to remember that when they're around others, and they they know that there is still life, there is still laughter, there is still fun, there there. 
there's still ways to enjoy each other and enjoy life. And I definitely see that um, within the group. And it's it's a different it's it's different than what I see in the clinic um, because that's that's you know you're you're talking a lot about the medical and the the physical things going on and it's 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 more of a doctor's appointment. But in the in in the group, you get to really see people's personalities and who they are, and it's it's really beautiful. Yeah. So I I want to make sure we touch on one other point because. I don't want to spend all day because you have a lot of work to do yourself. Um, but you mentioned before here that the groups also help you facilitate some research and that you're involved in some research at Hershey Medical Center. Um, you'll talk about what you do, but just so people know, there's amazing people working on research at Hershey. Uh, Dr. Connor doing some stuff on iron. Uh, Dr. Simmons doing work on telemedicine and other things. A genetics work going on at Hershey Medical Center. Uh, there is work uh, with Dr. Andrew Geronimo about brain-computer interface. And then some of that research even connects together with it, telemedicine and brain-computer interface and some other things. So what's your role in terms of uh, promoting research, connecting people with projects, um, and you know making sure that we can make a difference through research for people with ALS? Sure. Um, you know, and I just want to, again, just echo what you're saying is that so people understand we have so much research going on at, at, at Hershey um, and Ann Morris, who is the research manager at the Penn State uh, uh, Hershey Medical, it would really be the one to get in touch with in regards to all the different um, programs that, that we have. But as for myself, right now, I'm involved in, in two different um, research projects. Um, one is is really uh, for recruiting as far as my role goes, but we have an online mindfulness learning program for people with ALS and their caregivers. Um, it's a research study that per Penn State Hershey Medical is uh, doing along with Harvard University. Um, we're trying to determine if online mindfulness programs can impact the quality of life for people with ALS and their caregivers. Um, and the uh, mindfulness program asks people to take five to 20 minutes of their day every day for five weeks, um, accessing the mindfulness program from either their computer or mobile device. Um, and before I go any further, mindfulness, just to break that down, this time I'm going to make it very simplistic because it's a little more involved in that, but it's learning to live in the here and now, to be present in the moment. Um, if you're able to, to learn how to just live in this moment, it can um, alleviate feelings of depression by living in the past in the good old days or um, being anxious about what's coming in the future. Um, but to live in the here and now can bring peace and satisfaction to um, people's lives. So we're looking at how mindfulness can help um, the quality of life for patients and their loved ones. Um, if this is something that you'd be interested in uh, participating in, uh, there are some some guidelines that we have to make sure that you qualify for the uh, the. Uh, research project, but if you're interested in participating, you can contact Ann Morris, who's the manager of the uh, research, and her number is 717-531-0003, extension 289123. 
So that's one of the programs or research projects rather than working on. And um, another one is something that we're just kind of in the information gathering stage. Um, so we're just at the beginning of it. But myself, uh, Travis Haynes, who's the clinical research coordinator, and Carrie Reichlin, who is the speech language pathologist, are working on um, a study that looks at frontal temporal degeneration, um, meaning that we have found, or ALS in general, researchers have found that about 60% of ALS patients can experience cognitive or behavioral changes. Um, they could be very mild, um, but there there is evidence that that there could be these changes. Um, and we're looking at what is best practice for screening devices, or screening tools rather, um, to determine if people do have these these uh, ALS-specific changes, and what is the best practice for um, communicating those those uh, results to patients and the families, and the best practice for how we move forward in helping our patients. So that's very much in the, um, the beginning stages right now, but that's something that we hope to uh, be able to put together soon because it's definitely a need within the ALS community to look at that area. And, you know, I don't want to take too much of your time because you've, you've said it so much, though. Um, oh, no but problem. Hershey, I think it really needs to be emphasized a lot, and I'll do it here. Um, I, you know, when you're thinking about major centers in this country, in this world, for scientific research on a disease you're probably thinking of new york where there is great stuff or chicago or um los angeles the biggest cities in the country in the world that that's where the stuff is going but there is such a wealth of research and science happening at hershey medical center in central pennsylvania um that people may not know about and the work that those projects are so diverse which maybe i'm sure is intentional so that it's not just, you know, we have 300 patients and only people who are able to do this kind of study are applicable. Like, if you're not able to do one thing, there's a good chance that there's another project that you can do. Right. And I think that Dr. Simmons, uh, to his credit, has really made sure that there are research-type projects that are available that anyone can take part in because he knows that patients really want to participate. Right. And, and just to piggyback on that, um, it's not only the patients in a lot of these studies, but we're inviting the caregivers, too, which I think is a really important group to look at and, and um, to be able to research uh, their, their viewpoints on, on some of this, um, these areas, uh, because, again, um, they, are, they are affected equally, but in a different way. And I think it's wonderful that um, Hershey Medical does take their viewpoint into account as opposed to just looking at, at the patient's experience. Yeah, so you have, like I said, let, let's say, rough estimate, there's about 300 people with ALS there that are involved in the clinic in some way. Then there are another 300 people who are direct caregiver maybe more, and then there's people who have lost someone there. So you have almost close to a 1,000 people that could be involved in some way through Hershey right. Medical Center. And that's, you know, I think it's something that people just can't, it's hard to grasp that, you know, this place that's in central Pennsylvania 
that so much potential is there to help people and help people not just now but in the future. Right. Right. I mean, what what I have found in the in the few months that I've been um, with this group is that um, all of the my coworkers that I work with, not only at the chapter, but um, speaking specifically about Hershey, since that's where I spend the majority of my time, are so incredibly dedicated to to their work to the, this disease that it's not a nine to five job for I think really any of us that we put. Um, everything we have in, into whether it's working directly clinically with the patients or into research. And we are all encouraged to um, think about different areas that need to be looked at and researched. And then depending on our expertise, we work together in groups to, to look at those uh, different needs for ALS patients and their caregivers. And the more research that's done, the closer we do get to not only a cure uh, medically, but also to helping those who are experiencing um, everything that goes along with this disease in their lives right now. Uh, and it is, I mean, I can't, I can't stress enough how, how much uh, research really is being done at little South Central Pennsylvania right now. It's, there's, there's a lot going on down here. Well, I appreciate all that you're doing. Uh, we're hitting up at 45 minutes here of this conversation. And, oh, okay. No, no, it's great. I, I mean, we, that we, went fast. Yeah, I know. And, um, there's, there's not, we haven't had a dull moment. There's no like, oh, what should we talk about next? Because there's so much that you're working on um, in addition to overseeing the entire resource group work um, at the ALS okay. Association, Greater Philadelphia Chapter. Um, so I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Um, is there anything else that you want to make sure people know about your work before we leave this here today? Um, I just I just want all of our patients and families to know that we are all here for you, myself and my my colleagues. We are here to walk this journey with you. You are not alone. Um, you don't have to wait for clinic visits to reach out to any of us. We are an email or phone call away. I, I just want to stress to everybody that you are not alone. And I think that's such a huge piece to know that we're, we're all here for each other. And um, please, please reach out and, and take advantage of all the resources that we, we have for you. Well, there certainly are a lot of resources available, whether it's at Hershey Medical Center or at any of our clinics. Um, or even if you're not affiliated with one of our clinics, uh, if you're at a different chapter setting, um, if you're in between places, you, you, there's even things you can do from your home. So if you're in the the chapter service area, please visit www.alsphiladelphia.org to learn about all of our services and all of our clinics and where you can get involved to get some support as a person with ALS or a family member, or to learn about many of our fundraising activities and uh, and advocacy as well. If you're in a different part of the ALS Association community, go to www.alsa.org, um, also .org, if you will. And uh, you can look for um, both us and the national groups on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, see what's going on socially as well to share your story and get involved. Alaire, thanks for all your work, and thanks for taking uh, time today to tell us about what's going on at Hershey Medical Center. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being able to... Uh be part of this. Great. We'll, we'll talk to all of you again soon. Keep looking for our podcasts. And if you have any other suggestions of topics you want, 
um, to bring up or guests you want to hear from, you can email me, Tony, T-O-N-Y, at ALSPhiladelphia.org. Thank you to all of our friends and sponsors.